season of the church calendar we know as Advent, where we look forward with anticipation to the second coming of the Lord. As we drive closer to celebrating the first Advent in my house, it gets a lot harder to look forward to the second coming of Christ. Probably every hour someone asks Alexa, how many days until Christmas? There's a lot of anticipation about when the mailman will come and what he will bring. Christmas cards from friends or gift catalogs that children will pour over and take turns circling the things that they want. Eventually everything in the catalog is circled. There's going to be some anticipatory hope dashed on Christmas Day in my house, to be certain. But don't worry, kids, you'll, it'll be a great day. But I'm reminded that in my house growing up, every year my brother and I would ask my mom, Mom, what do you want for Christmas? My mom is 86 years old, and every year without fail, my mom's answer is the same. She says, all I want is peace and happiness. Peace and happiness. It became somewhat of a joke in my house. My house was not a home of strife. Um, Most of the time, we ended up scratching our head. What does she really mean? I've never been clear on what my mom envisions that to look like for her, but it certainly points to a deeper longing humankind has for things to be the way that they were originally intended to be. The first advent celebrates the arrival of the Prince of Peace. And peace in our world, and even in the Bible, can mean an absence of conflict, but it does point to something better. It points to what God promises to deliver in the second advent. It's a prominent concept, this concept of peace throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. And peace is also a key characteristic Of God himself. In the Old Testament, the word that we most commonly translate as peace is this word shalom, this Hebrew word shalom. We might just confuse it for a greeting. Shalom. Aloha. Ciao. But it means something much more profound. In the New Testament, the word, the Greek word used is erene. In their most basic meaning, they carry the sense of completeness or completion or fulfillment, of of entering into a state of wholeness and unity, a restored relationship. In the Bible, we see this word shalom or erene referring to peace being restored through a payment Tribute, restitution, even paying your bills. If you pay your bills on time, you're contributing to the peace of humankind. The Bible uses this word shalom to convey an image of an uncut stone with a whole or perfect shape or no cracks or blemishes. The type that God commanded to be used for the building of an altar we read in Deuteronomy chapter 27. It can also refer to the perfectly quarried stones dressed so precisely so as to form the wall of the temple that when they were put into place, no sound could be heard. And shalom or peace is also used to speak of an attitude of the heart. It's not simply a feeling. 
It's an objective state that is both static and dynamic. Peace indicates a life put together and properly ordered, a life characterized by a sense of wholeness and well-being as a result of God's activity and the righteousness we enjoy in and through Jesus Christ. Well, while my mom wanted peace for every Christmas, one year she obviously thought that I needed one of these, a Rubik's Cube. Some of you might be familiar with it. I don't even know if it's still popular today. It's a three-dimensional combination puzzle, six sides of, uh, of different colors with nine different pieces. It's developed in 1974, back when I was really young. Um, marketed in 1980, widely considered to be the world's best-selling toy. Still popular today. There are 43 quintillion, 252 quadrillion, 3 trillion, 274 billion, 489 million, 856,000 possible permutations to this cube. But only one configuration completes the puzzle. In its solution configuration, as I'm holding here, it's an adequate image to me of of what shalom might look like in an object. It's whole. It's put together. It's finished. If you were solving the puzzle, you would say it's perfect. In some ways, this cube, however, is is a lot like each of us. The designer of the cube, Erno Rubik, described it this way. He said it's static and dynamic. It has a surface structure that you can see, but it also has a hidden structure. And as static and dynamic human beings, we too have both a surface representation that we want people to see. But there's also a hidden structure to our personhood. But when we begin to disrupt the pristine configuration of this cube, we also get an image of the disruption in our lives that we constantly battle in our state of sin and our fallenness. It's what Cornelius Plantinga, an author and the president of a seminary, calls the vandalism of shalom, this disruption of peace. And this disruption of peace in our lives and in the world has innumerable permutations. You think 43 quintillion is a lot. And we may be tempted to believe that nothing can be done to solve that in ourselves. But the good news that we have proclaimed in our text this morning, as we've heard, is that there is peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Peace is this gift of God that can only be received and and lived out in his presence. In the first advent, the Prince of Peace inaugurated the kingdom of God, a, a kingdom of peace, of wholeness, of fulfillment, which will be fully realized in the second advent. But until then, we are called to be peacemakers, a people of peace, ambassadors of the king, representing his heart and his character, 
acting and speaking on his behalf. For peace is an expression of Christ's character, his mission, and his gospel. And because peace is an expression of Christ's character, mission, and gospel, we're to celebrate the perfection of his character. We're to anticipate the completeness of his mission. And we are to participate in the fulfillment of his gospel. Well, the Apostle John in the first chapter of his gospel account gives this witness to the first advent and and celebrates the perfection of Christ's character this way. He says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, the life that John speaks of here, he tells us, In a different letter, his first epistle, he says, this life is the love of God. It's this attitude of the heart that is also a component of this idea of peace. And this attitude of the heart is a fundamental meaning of what it means to have peace, to be a person of peace, to be a peacemaker. This love that is perfected, that is shalomed in Jesus, a love that God desires to be at the center of the life of every disciple of Jesus Christ. And this love at the center of our lives, this this peace that we enjoy as a gift of God, isn't reserved for certain people. It's for anyone who will receive it. As we see in our text this morning, God sent the Apostle Peter to the household of Cornelius. Cornelius and his household, his family, his friends, they weren't God's own people in the sense of being Israelites. They were Gentiles. People that Jews were not to associate with. In the passages preceding our sermon text this morning, we see God having to convince Peter to do things that Peter thought he shouldn't do, among them to go visit the house of a Gentile. And not only a Gentile, a Roman soldier, no less, a leader in an occupation force of a worldly and pagan king. And so as we turn to our text this morning, starting in verse 34, we see it says, So Peter opened his mouth and said to the household of Cornelius, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. As if simply being in Cornelius' home is part of what it took for Peter to become convinced of this. And he says, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. The Lord of all. You see, the perfection of God's character can be celebrated because it shows no partiality. The only requirement from God is reverence for who he is and a demonstration of allegiance to him through what we think and say and do and believe. And what God is doing through Peter 
he is also doing in Peter. Peter tells him the good news of peace is a gift of God that is realized in and through Jesus Christ. Friends, we only can experience peace through Christ. And then Peter goes on just to be very clear on the chain of command here for the centurion on his Palestinian peacekeeping mission. He reminds him that Jesus is the Lord of all. You see, the peace of Christ that is introduced to us in the first advent is an expression of God himself. And we celebrate the perfection of his character because we can trust that restoring the wholeness and well-being of all of creation is God's earnest desire. And because Jesus is Lord of all, we can trust that his peace will be realized at the fullness of time in the second advent. And so we anticipate the completeness of Christ's mission. We've celebrated the perfection of his character, and we anticipate the completeness of his mission. And I use this term completeness because Christ is the perfect human on a perfect mission to perfect the creation. He's shalom, shaloming for the sake of shalom. I'll stop there. In verses 37 and 38, Peter reminds the household of Cornelius that Jesus' life and ministry bore witness to the heart and character of God. He says in 37, he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. This anointing Jesus of Nazareth is messianic language. It's Jesus is the anointed one of God, the the Christ of the New Testament, the Messiah of the Old Testament. And there were many expectations as to who and what the Christ would be. The Old Testament scriptures provide a, a window into the messianic age, the one that we're living in today. And the one that we anticipate the fulfillment of in his second coming. It was an age to be characterized by righteousness, justice, and peace. By the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And by the restoration and renewal of God's people and his creation. And so Peter's testifying to the household here in the second half of verse 38. He says, he, Jesus, went about doing good. And healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You see, it's the works that testify to who Jesus is as the Messiah. As we look at the Old Testament prophets, and particularly Isaiah, we see that the Messiah was one who would restore sight to the blind. Make the lame walk, heal lepers. Raise the dead. And Christ could only undertake this mission. He could only accomplish these works, Peter says, because God was with him. You see, peace is a gift of God that can only be realized in and through the presence of Christ. 
Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, he says, the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. Believe the works, he says. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Peter goes on to tell the household of Cornelius, he says in verse 39, and we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. You see, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection are a complete and perfect testimony to the character of God. And they are defining characteristics of the kingdom. Like two, like Cornelius and his household, we too were separated from Christ and strangers to the covenant promises of God and having no hope without God. But just like Paul says to the Ephesian church, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, creating in himself one new humanity in the place of two, so making peace. You see, friends, the good news of the incarnation and the crucifixion is that it brought peace between God and all of humankind. Because peace is a gift of God through Christ. And it cannot be realized or lived out apart from the presence of God. It's an expression of the perfection of God's character and his mission. The cross fulfills the purpose of God in the incarnation. And the resurrection confirms that God will do what he's promised to do. And so as we celebrate peace in the perfect character of Christ, and as we anticipate peace in the completeness of his mission, we're also called to participate in the fulfillment of Christ's gospel. You see, the living God, who is always present and at work, God the Father, who is perfectly imaged in God the Son, This God in whom there is no unchristlikeness at all. He's invited us to be a vital part of how he's carrying out his plan to restore peace to all of his creation. You see, the greatness of God is on display when he uses the imperfect humans of his creation to bring about completion of his plan for the redemption of all creation. What a privilege it is to us. To be invited into that. And Peter tells Cornelius here in verse 42, he says, he commanded us, that is the apostles, the disciples, he commands us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, the the peace of Christ is both the fulfillment of his promises at the end of the age, but it's also the gift of our salvation here in the present. 
peace. Shalom. It's the fulfillment of God's divine purpose of being a complete and accomplished servant. But our sanctification is a process. And so there's this dynamic aspect to becoming a complete and accomplished servant. And that's this idea that we're called to live well in this age, to live a life centered in the love of Jesus and to participate in the fulfillment of his mission in this present age. Well, you, you might be tempted to think that I can solve this puzzle. Some of you are even hoping that as a matter of pastoral and sermonic showmanship, I will do it. And I assure you, I cannot. And I will not. I've guarded this cube since it arrived on my doorstep by Amazon saying, please, none of my children screw it up. Most people who solved the cube have found, have searched for and found a hack. They've memorized a set of instructions and algorithms to solve the cube. Solving the cube has gone not from a puzzle where we exercise our brain and our mind, but it's become a a contest of speed in this day and age. And you and I perhaps would hope for a similar hack, if you will, to dealing with a particular trial of life or sin struggle that we experience. Human nature, our proclivity is to follow the path of least resistance. I, I can no more solve this puzzle in the capacity of my brain, this side of the second coming of Christ, than I can obtain salvation by my own force of will and activity. For Rubik's Cube, there are 43 quintillion permutations, but only one solution. For our fallen nature and sinfulness, there are innumerable permutations, but only one Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter tells us he is Lord of all. True and everlasting peace is defined Christologically. It's in Christ. Our shalom is a perfection in life and spirit, which which humankind, you and I, we can't obtain it on our own. And so called to be persons of peace, what do we do with this? How how do we how do we do this? Well, in the Writings of the Apostle Paul, peace expresses reconciliation with God and and fellowship with God. And Paul often uses peace in a greeting, as a form of a greeting in his letters, grace and peace. It's a theological reminder that the peace with God that the church possesses through Christ is a gift of God. And it's this reminder that we need to live in light of this peace, to be people of peace. This Advent season that we're in is is a time to reorient to kingdom principles and to resolve that, that we as the church, we as those who profess Christ as our Savior, must be the indicators of both the reality of and the effect of peace. If we want to reorient to kingdom principles, I would invite you to start in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed 
are the peacemakers. I don't have enough time to go into what all that means. It's a whole separate sermon, but the scriptures are full of admonitions to be people of peace. The prophets remind us that that peace can never be apart, however, from righteousness and justice. In Isaiah, we read, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. And the effect of righteousness, he says, will be peace. Serving the causes of mercy, justice, and righteousness to make peace a reality in our spheres of influence is what God expects of us. And our faithfulness to this command is our living testimony and a proclamation of the gospel. Well, when Jesus, we read in the gospel, sends out his disciples to various villages to proclaim the good news, he sends them with the instructions, as Matthew says, to look for worthy persons. Luke calls them persons of peace. They are those whose openness to the disciples and their message revealed that God is already at work in their lives. And we see a number of people in the scriptures who we could define as people of peace. Levi, the tax collector. The man possessed by a legion of demons when he's healed, begs to go with Jesus, but Jesus commands him to stay in his town and to proclaim the good news. The Samaritan woman. Cornelius was a person of peace. He opened his home and called all his friends to hear the gospel from Peter. So we're called to be a person of peace. To do the works of justice and mercy that bring the peace of Christ to an unbelieving world. And we're to proclaim the gospel of peace to persons of peace. Well, until the second advent, neither you nor I or this puzzle will be restored to completeness. At least this puzzle in my house, in my possession. Our world, Cornelius Plendhinga says, is not the way it's supposed to be. So what does the peace and happiness that my mom longs for every Christmas look like? Well, I close with how Plantinga paints the picture this way. He says it would include, for instance, strong marriages and secure children. Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, complementary. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men until a crisis arose. And then, with good humor all around, the person more naturally competent in the area of the crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction and pleasure of both. Government officials would still take office. Somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Public telephone books would be left intact. Highway overpasses would be free of graffiti. Truck drivers and erring motorists would be safe on inner city streets. Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. Middling Harvard students would respect the Pi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople 
and would seek to learn from them. Above all, the visions of Christians and other theists, God would preside in the unspeakable beauty for which human beings long and in the mystery of holiness that draws human worship like a magnet. In turn, each human being would reflect the color of the light of God's presence out of the inimitable resources of his or her own character and essence. Human communities would present their ethnic and regional specialties to other communities in the name of God, in glad recognition that God, too, is a radiant and hospitable community of three persons. In their own accents, communities would express praise, courtesies, and deferences that, when massed together, would keep building like waves of a passion that is never spent. Come, Lord Jesus, let it be so in our community beginning now. Would you pray with me? Father Almighty, Yehovah Shalom, you anointed your son Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit and with power to bring us the blessings of your kingdom of peace. Anoint your church with the same Holy Spirit that we who share in his suffering and victory may be a people of peace, bearing witness to the gospel of salvation in everything that we think, say, and do. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Stand together.